Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, it is, uh, it's a great passage. It's a very interesting one again. We have Kings has been throwing at us these really fascinating stories where we see God at work doing amazing things. And this is another one uh, with many lessons. But why don't I begin in prayer asking for God's help as we look at it. Heavenly Father, please speak to us now through your word. What we are not, make us. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we all hear voices in our heads. Sometimes uh, it's a sign that we're crazy. Uh, You know, maybe if they're audible voices, maybe you are crazy. Uh, But we all have voices in our heads. You know, maybe it's your mother saying, don't chew with your mouth open. Maybe it's your doctor saying, three teaspoons of sugar in your tea is just too much. Uh, Maybe it's your wife saying, I love it when you put your dirty dishes away. Uh, Or maybe it's your boss saying, the next person to do that is going to get fired. Uh, I was never really aware of uh, all the voices going around in my head until uh, as part of like a course I did, we did this reflection and it was, it said for a given situation that we were considering, who are the voices in your head? And I could literally list off all of these figures. It's it's quite a fascinating thing. One of the privileges uh, of being a parent is that you get to put voices in your kid's head. Uh, the highest of which, of course, is to teach them about God. Put God's voice in their head so that in a given situation, they know what God thinks, so they can discern the will of God for their lives. One of the most uh, fascinating things about today's passage is the way King Joash, he was raised as a boy in the temple uh, by the priest. You know, it couldn't, you couldn't get a better education than that. Um, he grew into a man, however, as he grew, and he wanted to shut out that voice of God. It was there, but he, he wanted to, and you could see him kind of spiral as he looks to try and shut out the voice of God. For it's one thing to know God's will, it's another thing entirely to do it. So let's, let's get into it. We've got uh, two chapters, two halves, two main characters. Uh, chapter 11, it's the priest who leads the way, uh, rescues a small boy, Joash, and then crowns him king. And in the second half, chapter 12, Joash becomes king and begins to reign. And so my three points around this are the priest who knew how and did, the king who knew how but did not, and the priest king who knew and did. So firstly, the priest who knew and did. By way of context, in the book of Kings, you know, just generally we're still plotting the slow fall of God's nation, uh, today, though, the, the focus shifts to Judah, not the northern kingdom anymore, Israel, where we have been in the last few passages. Now we're thinking about Judah and the king of Judah. And today's story actually begins in the power vacuum left from last week. If you remember last week, Jehu the Perger, he went on a, a massive rampage. Uh, he killed uh, both the Israelite and Judean kings, and he, and he took out almost all of Ahab and Jezebel's family. And we saw that God's judgment uh, against those who stand against him, when it comes, it, it's swift and it is terrible. But this week we see uh, Athaliah, the mother of, of the, the Judean king who was killed, uh, and she was also daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She steps into this void. Uh, so verse 11, 1 begins. Then Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead. She proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs. Athaliah assumes control and proceeds to kill all possible rivals. 
Um, you know, and this is pretty gruesome. Like, these probably would have included her own family, almost certainly her grandkids, but she is getting everyone out of the way who could possibly take the throne from her. Pretty callous stuff. Uh, and then, and yet, like, that is just how these kingdoms work. That's how these nations work. When, when you have uh, a monarch like this, someone ruling in that way, uh, it, it's not uncommon to see this, is it? Um, but this isn't any nation. This is God's nation, isn't it? And God, he anoints his elect. He chooses who is king. And, and God has promised the king of Judah is going to be a son of David. Uh, he's promised the nation will, will be the, from the seed of Abraham eternally. Athaliah has not been anointed by God. And so the book of Kings views her as an illegitimate queen. Athaliah is a usurper raising up against the house of God, attempting to negate God's promises redirecting history back to the house of Ahab that last week we saw was purged. Um, This really, it's Psalm 2. You think of the famous Psalm. The people plot in vain. They conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. God's king is not accepted as ruler here on earth. He's rejected in favor of another agenda. Uh, Of course, we see the same in our society today where the rule of God's chosen king, Jesus, is not accepted or even acceptable. Uh, his teachings and statutes, I mean, our society, in, it, it's considered abhorrent, isn't it, what Jesus said? Our society will not accept that anymore. Um, and it's been seen also clearly uh, in the last couple of weeks with the forcing out of Andrew Thorburn, the Essendon CEO. I'm sure you saw it in the papers. Like, really, um, really terrible stuff. Uh, I don't really know much about Andrew Thorburn and what he believed, nor really did the people that forced him out. Um, All they knew, really, is that he was associated with Jesus, that he sought to live under Jesus' rule uh, along with his church, and that was enough to make him unacceptable. What's to become of such efforts to suppress God's rule, the rule of God's king? Well, they prove temporarily effective, like, like the medication we take to manage symptoms They provide temporary relief only, uh, as we see today, as our story unfolds. So back to the story, where we really have a crisis. You don't really notice it in verse 1, but when you think about God's promises in his kingdom, this is a crisis. God's promise to David hangs by a thread. Verse 2, Jesheba, who was King Joram's daughter and Ahaziah's sister, secretly rescued Joash, son of Ahaziah, from the king's sons who were being killed, and put him and the one who nursed him in a bedroom. So he was hidden from Athaliah and was not killed. And so a brave woman uh, steps up and rescues the boy who is the seed of David's house. Uh, And what I love here is just how clearly we see God's means. Uh, God uses his people to do his work here on earth. This is, this is God's usual way of blessing people, is of, of bringing people into his kingdom. He does it by putting it on the hearts of his followers, putting it on our hearts. This is how God does his work. He, he puts it on our hearts that we might follow and act. Uh, and so don't, don't neglect. When you see God's work that needs to be done, open yourself up to be being used by God for his kingdom. In the everyday, um, you know, parenting a child... That's a huge part of so many people's lives as followers of Jesus, um, raising up a child to know the Lord or, or each other, our brothers and sisters, teaching each other about 
what God's voice is, what God's, where God's heart lies, being active in that. Well, our story continues in verse 3. Uh, Joash was hiding with Jesheba in the Lord's temple six years while Thyatira ruled over the land. So Joash is hidden away in the temple, and the reason he's put in the temple is because the woman who rescued him is married to the high priest, if you could picture that. Uh, and you can just imagine this woman brings the, temp- the baby into the temple, and, and the high priest would have been like, what's going on? This, you know, it's not bring the kid to work day. This, it's, not, it's not a preschool. Uh, but, you know, in this case it was. It was a kind of orphanage, perhaps. Verse 3 says he was hidden away for six years. Um, and, and through this whole chapter, as I said, Joash is, is kind of passive. It's God that's rescuing him. God that's leading the way. God crowns him. Uh, his, his protection is explained in verses 4 to 11. We had it read. The entire Judean guard is enlisted. And you're left sure that God's elect would not die. Verse 10 adds that the priests gave the commanders of hundreds, King David's spears and shields, which were in the Lord's temple. Who knew the temple had an armory? I love that. I'm inspired by that. I think I'm going to put a, a proposal into the parish council, maybe a little armory here behind this curtain, some, some grenade launchers, some nunchucks. I don't know. There's a lot of potential. Uh, the point, though, is that he's protected. Uh, and then his crown, verse 12, says, The priest brought out the king's son, put a crown on him, gave him the testimony, and made him king. They anointed him and clapped their hands and cried, Long live the king. And so he's crowned as king. And when it says he's given the testimony, he's given God's word. It would have been like something like the first few books of our Old Testament. Um, he, he's crowned. And so he's ready. He's been raised to know God's way, to hear God's voice. Uh, meanwhile, verse 14, midway through, the illegitimate queen sees that all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Athalia tore her clothes and screamed, Treason, treason! Uh, how fascinating. I, you know, I'm queen. This is treason. This is my kingdom. You know, She felt entitled to the kingdom that she had won by her sword. Uh, and entitlement is, is such a fascinating thing. It, it's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Entitlement can lead people to, to steal, to invade other nations, to, to hold a grudge, to justify treating other people badly. Our heart so easily says, this should be mine, or this used to be mine, I deserve this, and so it's my right that I take it. The human heart so easily cries out, treason, treason. And yet it's God that marks out boundaries. It's God who determines what people are entitled to, what is good and right and ultimately what will be. Uh, And so to avoid entitlement, accept God's measure, his laws, his boundaries, accept thankfully, contentedly, and you'll be spared from the trap of entitlement. As always, uh, trust and fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, Athalia has been uh, put to death. Joash begins his reign by having God's covenant renewed by the priests. Verse 17 says, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king, and the people that they would be the Lord's people, and another covenant between the king and the people. So they commit to being, uh, they commit to Yahweh, uh, and they want to be his people. And so verse 18, uh, of course, is the natural response. It says, All the people of the land went down to the temple of Baal, tore it down. They broke down its altars and images into pieces. They killed Matan, the priest of Baal, and the altars. 
So God's priest has done well. He has shown the king how to live for God, how to lead the people in serving God. And so we enter the second part of our passage, where Joash begins to rule. My second point is the king who knew but did not. Chapter 11 ends by saying, Joash was seven years old when he became king. And as he grew, we're told the priest continued to to be the voice of God for the king as he began to reign as king. So have, have a look at verse 2. We have this interesting summary there. Chapter 12, verse 2 says, Throughout the time Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. So that's a pretty good uh, commendation, doing what is right in the Lord's sight. Uh, But it's a bit of a question. Come with me as we look to unravel the question of Joash. Was he good or was he a bad king? Because the very next verse begins with a yet. Not a word you want to hear from God, yet. It says, yet the high places were not taken down uh, and the people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. Well, that can't be good. That doesn't sound very promising. Um, The high place, it it was another place of worship to another god. Yahweh had his temple, but the high places were effectively temples to false gods. Their incense would drift up a fragrant aroma, uh, and it was meant to please these uh, false gods, but of course all it did was displease the true God. And so how can verse say, uh, 2 say that he did the right thing? The puzzle continues with an episode through verses 4 to 16 about repairing Yahweh's temple, Verse 3 says uh, the temples of the other gods remain. Verse 4 says Joash was concerned to repair Yahweh's temple. Why? Was this, was this guilt? Was this a righteous act? Um, the, the repairs struggle along from beginning to end. Uh, in verse 4, Joash, he raises the, the funds to, to get this to happen. Um, but, but he takes money from money that was dedicated to God, to the temple, and, he, and, he, and he's going to repair it with that. And it's like, well... It, was that the right thing to do? It's hard to tell. Other kings had given from their own royal funds. What's going on here? Or verse 6, we hear that by the 23rd year, the damage was still not repaired. And so Joash looks to sort it out again. But it's hard to tell. Is this positive or negative? Is it kind of better late than never? It's good he's doing something. Or should he have sorted it out? Why did it take 23 years? What's going on? And finally, he does sort out the issue of finances in verse 9. Let me read it. It says, Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bought a hole in its lid, set it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the Lord's temple. In it, the priest who guarded the threshold put all the money bought to the Lord's temple. So this time, they have funds. They raise the money required, uh, and the temple is repaired. But again, it's a bit hard to tell. Is this a good or a bad description of the king? Why did there need to be a chest? It sounds like a piggy bank, doesn't it? It's this chest with a little hole in the top, probably to stop people stealing money. Who was stealing it? Is that the king's fault? Whose fault is it? Again, so many questions. It's hard to tell with this passage. Well, in moments like this uh, of Bible reading, it's good to zoom out. It's good to zoom out. Uh, and as we do that, we, we look at the end of the chapter, and Joash clearly really falls falls off the wagon. He, he's clearly doing ungodly things. Uh, there's a progression. Verse 2, he's doing what's right in, in the eyes of the Lord. By the end, he's clearly not. It turns out that when verse 2 said, uh, throughout the time Jehoda the priest instructed him, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight, it turns out that that was actually a condemnation of Joash. 
It was saying while a priest was there mentoring him, it was okay. But as he came into his own, in chapter 12, he is a disappointment to Yahweh. Joash knew what to do, but didn't do it. Nobody knew better than him. But he did not hold on to his teaching. Instead, he wavers and falls on almost every term. So it's a good little trick. Zoom out in context when you're confused. Another one, though, is to see what other parts of Scripture say. And through uh, 1 and 2 Kings, we have a parallel account in 1 and 2 Chronicles. The same parts of history. Uh, similar stories are often told, and often they add in other details. And in this particular passage, it's very helpful because there's a lot more detail in these passages. So I'll have the verses up on screen, but if you want, you can turn ahead two books to 2 Chronicles chapter 24, chapter 24 starting in verse 20. And the context is, I'll, I'll read a little bit of uh, the Second Chronicles account of Joash's life. Uh, the context is Judah was worshipping Asherah poles and idols, and we're told God sent Jehoiada, the priest's son. So this isn't the priest that rescued Joash, it's his son now. God sends him to have a word uh, to these people and tell them what they're doing is not right. So Second Chronicles 24.20 says, uh, the, the, the priest stands up and says, this is what the Lord says, why are you transgressing the Lord's commands and do not prosper? It's because you have abandoned the Lord. He has abandoned you. This is a terrible indictment. No one wants to hear this kind of condemning voice. Uh, and so in verse 21, we get their reaction. But they conspired against him and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. The king has the priest killed, shut out. Uh, to, to shut out the voice of God, right? He didn't want to hear this. He was sick of this. And so he has the priest's uh, son killed, who, who was the high priest himself. Uh, in the very courtyard where Jawash was raised uh, as a small boy, he has the priest stoned. And a, a little detail, uh, remember Athalia, the, the, the queen, the illegitimate queen, when they went to kill her, they said, no, no, we can't do it in, in, in the temple. We have to take her out. Uh, and yet here, Joash uh, forgets about that and has the priest killed right in the temple. So Second Chronicles offers its sobering summary. It says in verse 22, King Joash didn't remember the kindness of Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had extended to him, but killed his son. And so he has cut out the voice of God, which was just incredibly callous. This was his mentor. This was like his father figure, and yet he has his son killed. Joash was the king who knew but did not. And people always look to remove the condemning voice of God from their lives when they know they're not right with him. Uh, rarely is it as blatant as Joash. Uh, seven weeks ago, there were reports in, uh, coming from China of three churches that had been raided by police. Uh, you know, one of the churches, all 70 of the, the people gathered were arrested. Um, and apparently, this is happening to all the Protestants there who uh, their churches are being forced into state-run churches. The state wants to be able to control them. So do, do keep them in your prayers and admire their bravery and, and faithfulness and still gathering. Uh, but we see here there's a tension between the voice of the government and the voice of God. The words of one church leader uh, caught my ears. They said, I quote, this latest round of persecution seeks to strictly control people's thoughts, end quote. And so... These churches can't exist because the authoritarian government wants to control people's thoughts. Uh, our society is not quite as blatant as that, and yet Andrew Thorburn, who we mentioned earlier, he still doesn't have a job. 
See, Joash, Joash censored God. Uh, he put to death the voice of God that he would not have to have his actions condemned. Uh, and it's a short-term fix because God can't be silenced. You, you know, you might be able to imprison his church members, but God's heavenly church cannot be shaken. The work that Christ has done cannot be undone. You may silence the voice of God, uh, which speaks God's truth, but at the end of the age, all become the throne, come before the throne of God one by one and listen to the judgment of his elect, of his king. And the king will say in that moment, either well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. Well, back to our uh, story in Second Kings where we get uh, two more remaining accounts of Joash's life. Let me very quickly whiz through them as we see uh, he, the plot kind of spirals at this point. So uh, chapter 12, verses 17 to 18, he tries to buy off Hazel, uh, Hazel the king of uh, Syria, who we've had uh, before in Second Kings. He marches up to attack Jerusalem, and verse 18 of chapter 12 says, So King Joash of Judah took all the consecrated items that his ancestors, Judah's kings, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, uh, Ahaziah had consecrated, along with his own consecrated items and all the gold found in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and in the king's palace, and he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram. Then Hazael withdrew from Jerusalem. Well, that isn't good. Uh, whenever you see this happening in the Old Testament, it's, it's never good when uh, God's nation tries to buy off an invader. It's always an indictment upon them. Apart from just being a bad military strategy, it, this never works. Um, this isn't how God's people are meant to deal with their problems. You know, we're, we're to turn to Yahweh and seek his help, his protection, his provision, and we position ourselves in Christ to be right with God so that we can when something like this happens next time you're invaded by a, a pagan king. Uh, but Joash, Joash couldn't turn to God, could he? Uh, instead, he, he strips Yahweh's temple of its gold. It's just interesting that this happens given the account of repairing a temple. What's the point of repairing a temple if you have to strip it of all of its consecrated items and gold because you're not right with God? It's a, it's a, terrible, it's a terrible account. Perhaps it's a lesson telling us to get our hearts right before we try and serve God. Uh, the, the very final account of Joash uh, is of his death. Verse 20 says, Joash's servants conspired against him and killed him. So Joash's reign, it's been plagued with signs that he was never really in control, that he ran the kingdom his own way, ignoring the voice of God, and ultimately this led to his downfall. All right, my final point then. Uh, the priest king who knew and did. I wonder if you've heard echoes of Jesus all throughout this account little hints here and there. Of course, Joash was not the first or last small child to be rescued from a, from a powerful ruler who was trying to kill him and he was hidden away. Of course, we had Moses who was hidden in a basket from Pharaoh. Uh, and then Jesus, if you remember, was hunted by Herod and they ended up hiding in Egypt. God, against our wisdom, against any kind of wisdom, God put his kingdom in the hands of humans, of, of little children like what a, what a terrible move if you want security of a kingdom to, to run it through a, a line of people, of actual descendants. It doesn't sound like a good idea. And yet this is God's magnificent plan. You can see that Joash, he was a part of that plan. He was anointed as God's king, but he wasn't obedient. 
Just because he was chosen, just because he was anointed, it wasn't enough. He will still be judged by God. Ultimately, God invited Joash into his kingdom, but Joash walked away because of his obedience. Disobedience. Different words. Uh, And then, so we've had two chapters, right? We have the obedient priest and the disobedient king. And Jesus is the the priest king. Jesus is both. Uh, And Jesus, Jesus did it right. He got it right. He knew the voice of his father in heaven, and he listened and he obeyed. Uh, he, he, like Joash, was raised up as a small boy to know the voice of God, to walk, to be faithful, and he looked to please his father. And Jesus did it, unlike Joash. He walked in obedience. We talk about uh, Jesus dying on the cross. We talk a lot about that, and, and that's right. But more accurately, Jesus saves us because of his faithful life, um, his whole life. So my favorite theologian, Herman Bavinck, says, uh, Jesus' whole life was a substitutionary sacrifice his whole life was lived as a sacrifice in place of ours we could not we could not be obedient but his whole life he was he lived it out he did it jesus did it jesus's obedience and his faithfulness to the will of the father it gives him the right to forgive us and to rule as king forever and see all of this um all of this then affects how we live as his followers as Jesus' followers, as God's people, we too need to do more than just know. We need to do, we need to live out our Christian lives. And this is the exact logic of Philippians 2. So Philippians 2, chapter 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's obedience, even to the point of death. But then we see Philippians continues and it says, So we must be obedient too. Verse 12 says, So then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now also even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we work out our salvation, we obey fearing the Lord, as Jesus did. Jesus was obedient, and so we are obedient as well. And there's a great symmetry to this whole passage where Jesus is obedient as a worker in verse 8, and then there's the Christian, the obedient worker in verse 12, and then in verse 13, we have God's obedient working as well. Well, not God, God's not obedient, but God is working. So it says, for God, um, it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. So God, God enables us. Joash, Joash didn't desire to follow God, did he? His heart wasn't there. But God will enable you to desire to be obedient, to work for him. God is working to work out his good purposes in us. And so we see in our passage, God steers the ship. God has a plan. He's building a kingdom and he uses obedient workers to bring out about his purposes. And so don't neglect to do the work of God. Be obedient always. Wherever God has put you, be obedient in everything. You may miss out on a party because of it. You may, you may lose your job because of it. It may cost you time and money. You may have to change your plans uh, in big or small ways, but God is at work in the world around us through us. We are his workforce. We're the only workforce he has. So be obedient, be faithful, as King Jesus was, even to the point of death. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness in building a kingdom and inviting us into it. Please work through us, enable us to desire 
to be obedient to your voice that we find in the pages of Scripture. And give us the strength to listen to you and be obedient in a society in a society who is against you. Thank you for the joy of being your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.